Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Travis, for a long time, with allergies, hay fever as well in particular, in my life, spring was always terrible, but then it became a bit more than spring. And way back in the 80s, the doctor, I remember, gave me this thing, which was the precursor to Telfast. They discovered this new drug, or that's the story I was told. And I've been on that ever since. <laughs> it's almost like a daily dose. I feel like I'd like to sh- loose those chains. But the doctor did say this is one of the most inane or inert uh, drugs out there. It's okay. So there's my opening for you. Um, comment. No, look, it, it sounds good. Actually, allergies have been with us for a long time, but it hasn't been recognised for what it is. We've called this episode Friendly Fire because this is the immune system attacking something that's either uh, inert or harmless to us, but it is interpreted. We even have a, a quote from a Roman philosopher from the, the first century AD who is Lucretius. What is food to one man is bitter poison to others. So that's clearly referring to some food allergy. Uh, So some people back then would be able to eat something, it would be fine. His neighbour might have eaten the same thing and feel terrible, sick, unwell. And if we look at it right at the moment, uh, allergies are the sixth leading cause of chronic illness in the US. It's estimated to cost about $18 billion a year. So we're going to separate the podcast into three sections, as we normally do. But the first will be about hay fever. The second will be about anaphylaxis. And the third will be about food allergies. And with each one of that, we've got our special guest immunologist. Don't tell us. Don't tell us. Let's hold that as a surprise. (laughs) To give us the clinical context and the importance of these conditions. That brings us to our first part. The most important person is, uh, his name is uh, Charles Blackley, and he's from 1873. Now, he wrote an article. He, he called it Experimental uh, Cateris Estavius. So he was English, uh, and at the time they had a condition called hay asthma or hay fever. And this was around the time that germ theory was beginning, but We know that Charles was a sufferer of this hay asthma, and he wanted to find out why. Now, he didn't think it was due to a germ because of the cyclic nature that he would get each year. So if it was a germ, it would come and then go on a seasonal basis. Mm -hmm. So he postulated a physical theory of disease for this. If the causes of communicable disease do not possess any of the characteristics of germs we shall still have to admit that disease is, in a large number of instances, the result of the operation of two principal factors. The one being a condition of the animal body, which permits the development of disease in that organism. The other, that of some agent external to the body, which becomes operative whenever it is present. This is hay fever, and it was believed at this time to be the birthplace in England. Uh, Now, this is certainly not true, but 
So we have Leonardo Botello in 1565, who actually has a description of these seasonal allergic disorders. Uh, and it's clear uh, that the reason they thought it was discovered in England was because the earliest description they had was from 1819 from John Bostock in an article in the Medico-Turical Society of London. And he called this a case of the periodical affliction of the eyes and chest. And he wrote, About the beginning or middle of June in every year, the following symptoms make the appearance with a greater or less degree of violence. A sensation of heat and fullness is experienced in the eyes. A general fullness is experienced in the head, irritation of the nose, producing sneezing, which occurs in fits of extreme violence, coming on at uncertain intervals. To the sneezings are added a farther sensation of tightness of the chest and a difficulty breathing with a general irritation. However, it does not assume in every season, and indeed its violence is generally less than is here described. Last summer, he remained nearly confined to the house for about six weeks, and the result was that, notwithstanding the unusual warmth of the season, his experience much less of the affection than he had done for several years before. This goes on for about four or five pages. I've sort of had to reduce it uh, to get it to a, an understandable. They go, he goes into excruciating detail mm. about these. Now, it's clearly about himself, even though it's you know, talking about a patient. Yes. Uh, and, and they note this. Now, he describes a whole bunch of remedies they tried, none of which worked, but this included, included topical bleeding, blisters, purging, used a change of diet, uh, bark and other tonics, which I don't know what bark tonic is, but okay. Uh, also used steel, mercury, opium, cold baths, uh, digitalis, which is a drug that you use for heart, heart failure at the moment, uh, as well as uh, topical treatments to the eyes. So now none of them worked. But this is them trying to work out, okay, there must be something that's affected this how are we going to treat it? In 1828, there was an article that, that said, well, this disease, and they, they theorized that it's caused by hot houses or greenhouses. Um, but the public believed that it was due to hay fields. And this is where we get the name, hay fever or hay asthma. And so Charles did deductive reasoning and an experimentation to find the causative agent. And so he did this over, it took him over a decade and using his, uh, his own symptoms. A bunch of one of the grasses had been gathered by one of my children and placed in a vase in one of the rooms at home, which I seldom enter. I happened, however, to notice the vase in going into the room after the grass had been placed there, and on disturbing it to examine it, a small cloud of pollen was detached and came in close proximity to my face. I commenced sneezing violently in the course of two or three minutes and had what I considered a rather smart, though short, attack of my usual early summer disorder. I was satisfied that the symptoms were due to the pollen. This then put him into the experimentation field on himself. So he got a whole bunch of things called uh, benzoid acid. He got cudamine. He got other symptoms such as paraffin oil, camphor, different flowers, different fungi, ozone, even dust, and pollen. 
And so what he did, he would evaporate them, sniff them or smell them or put himself into the room and check his own symptoms. And what he found was that pollen produced a similar symptoms to his hay fever. The severity and continuitance was dependent upon the quantity that was available. And he had now his causative agent. Pollen was the cause for this hay fever. So then he conducted two further experiments. On himself? Well, this is on, on uh, slides, actually. Oh, okay. So he said, well, if it's pollen, how extensive is pollen? He got a microscope slide, covered it in glycerine, put it under a small roof, and then left it for 24 hours. And then he counted the pollen grains that had accumulated on that. And he found that the pollen counts increased in early June, again, Northern Hemisphere, peaked late June and reduced over July. Then he said, well, okay, if it's about, how high can it go? So he got some more microscope slides, attached them to kites and put it at 500 feet and 1,500 feet. And what he found was that more pollen was actually in the higher altitude at the 1500 than there was at the lower. Really? So that meant it could spread much further than what people thought. So he had his causative agent, and then he had how it spreads. And just one note, I hope he is a hero to Professor Barry Marshall, who did all the self-experimentation in working out the fight against ulcers. You, you will find people did it a lot more than what you think in this episode. When hay fever pollen invades your sinuses, brings runny nose, watery eyes, take Dristan. Dristan's like sending your sinuses to Arizona. Yes, Dristan's like sending your sinuses to Arizona. And joining us now, we have Dr. Damon Langus, clinical immunologist with Sullivan Nicolaides Pathology. Welcome to this pathological life. Thank you very much for inviting me. As a student going through learning about immunology, the immune system, uh, and learning about allergies and hypersensitivity reactions, we learned about, you know, type 1, 2, 3, 4. Now, I haven't used them since, but I was trying to work out, are these clinically relevant? Are these useful categories that we have? Is this something you do day to day? Look, they still have relevance. The gel and Coombs, Coombs classification was invented in the 60s. In fact, prior to the knowledge of many of the things we know now about the immune system. Um, so uh, type 1 really is your classic eat food, get a rash, have anaphylaxis, or ingest some substance or be injected with some substance and have an immediate reaction. We don't generally think of type 2 and 3 as allergy, but more of immune reactions, so hypersensitivities. Mm. Uh, type 3 is relatively uncommon, things like getting penicillin-induced immune thrombocytopenia, uh, drug-induced drug uh, autoimmune hemolysis, um, but far more common, and in fact, very common reactions are type 4. Um, now, very few type 4 reactions actually fit in with known mechanisms. So it's very difficult to split them into me mechanisms. They're actually now um, type 4 A to B, 
You know us in immunology, we like inventing more classification systems. Yeah. The minute you know something, we like to subgroup it and uh, make another subgroup analysis. But even then, um, often type 4 reactions have features of more than, say, A, B, A and B. There might be A and C. So, um, in fact, it just makes more sense to think of them as a delayed drug reaction. Right. And classically, these are the reactions that occur after four days. The most serious and feared, of course, is Stevens-Johnson syndrome and just as bad as toxic epidermal necrolysis. However, they're pretty rare. And when I say pretty rare, 100,000 less than that. Yeah. Uh, so, And the other thing is, in Stevens-Johnson syndrome, 40% of cases don't have an obvious cause. You know, th these are important to how you think and what investigations you're going to do. But when I think of it as an immunologist, you've got to be very careful at kind of implying, particularly in type 4, that you know exactly what's going on. Some of the tests that we get asked about or done, I, I want to get your responses to how useful or how they're best used. So if just a general, you know, a GP orders a, a, an IgE level just because they you know, think someone might have. Is that a useful test to request? No, not ever. Right. Total IgE. One, the, the reference ranges were established before the real rise of atopy came around. Right. Um, then it becomes hard to actually, uh, as everyone would be aware when you deal with reference ranges, when the population changes to include a very large amount of so-called diseased people in it, it becomes hard to let the normals in. So in other words, normal is what you want for reference range. It becomes very hard when the frequency of allergy is so high. Um, but in itself, your level of IgE, if it's really, really, really low, like less than 15, your chance of having atopic disease is low. But that's all it means. Right. Having, I always get rung, this person's IgE is 2,000. And I say, oh, that's not very high. And people go, what? And you're going, well, <laughs> if you said it was 200,000, I might be interested. And, and people are shocked that it can go that high. And the height doesn't mean much. In people with severe atopic dermatitis, it is common to have IgEs in the 10,000s and above. Right, right. okay. Uh, it, it does track in some diseases with their disease, but no one practically in immunology and allergy uses total IgE levels mm. to mean anything. Do you use eosinophilia as a marker of anything? Yes, but not particularly atopy. So right. uh, we know that if you look at atopic asthma, um, so we really call that um, type 2 asthma, so TH2 cells, the classic atopic or allergic arm of the arm of the immune system, whether you have uh, high IgE or whether you have high eosinophils, you can or the combination of the both, you can still be in that group. Uh, it does mark your responses to certain medications, uh, but it doesn't tell you a great deal of difference between, say, a person who's got eosinophilia with allergic rhinitis compared to a person with allergic rhinitis who doesn't have eosinophilia. It doesn't tell you absolutely anything at all about them. Now, I know this is an antiquated term that everyone still uses, so RAST testing. Yep. Um, I mean, we've got uh, hundreds of uh, different tests within that. Is this a useful test? Like, how targeted does it have to be? Uh, is it useful for GPs to order just a sort of RAST test? Yeah, interestingly, that term is actually a trademark term. Oh, so right. the term radioallergosorbent uh, test is actually got an, a little R mark next to it. Right. Um, so, uh, but, and it hasn't been radioactive for 30, 40 years. Right. 
Yeah. Um, so we, but really, we like the term in immunology specific IgE, mm-hmm. but it's a bit longer and it's not quite as nice to say. <laughs> but the, te- the basically, if you think of it, the more common the allergy, the more we know about the allergy, and the more we know about the allergens associated with that. So if you're allergic to blackberries, and you might think that's silly, but basically you can be allergic to any natural product. Mm-hmm. A natural product's much more likely than unnatural products. Um, but pretty much there's probably someone out there in the world who's managed to be allergic to pretty much most things. Um, so if you're allergic to BlackBerry, the sum total of the literature on BlackBerry allergy won't be very much. And the immense, the scientific research put into that allergy won't be very much either. Um, and yet there will be a test because it's been developed. It will have some utility, uh, but it will likely have low sensitivity and it may have poor specificity, i.e. cross-react to other fruits which you may or may not be allergic to but let's say we look at something like milk or peanut Uh, we have an incredible amount of data about the allergens associated with them Um, most foods have about 10 individual allergens which cause can cause allergy Uh, so for peanut there are 10 uh, and in different populations uh, there are different allergens which are more important some appear to be more dominant in other words uh, they uh, occur in, say, 60 to 80% of patients, and we can use those as a screen. Uh, that's uh, happened using recombinant technology, so we can actually produce these allergens artificially uh, and then look for what we call component resolved diagnostics. We can start to look at the individual allergens you're allergic to when you're allergic to a food. Uh, I think the, they are very useful as a GP. Um, we can collect blood, we can even keep it in the lab if you need further testing later. We only need something like 20 microliters per test. Uh, so even for a small child, when we're only taking one to two mils of blood, we have a fair bit of resource there. Uh, and it's always worthwhile talking to your lab uh, if they don't keep it to ask them to keep it in case there are further tests that you're going to do in the future. Um, I would strongly advise against ordering mixes. So in other words, these are say food groups where five or six foods are tested at once. Basically, that means the test has got uh, way less sensitivity and way less specificity. Mm. So you're more likely to get uh, five foods, uh, which are very low insignificant positives, add up to give a slight positive, and then further investigations are done, which are probably waste of time. Um, We've got lots of information about cutoffs. Unfortunately, these differ pretty much in every population we ever look at. They don't differ in most of the important food groups hugely, uh, but they do differ by age. So what's important in a two-year-old is different to what's important in an eight-year-old. And those are the kind of things it's very difficult for me to keep my uh, mind on. Uh, That's why we have tables, and that's why as a pathologist, you don't try and uh, remember any of them. And I certainly wouldn't think a GP should have to do that kind of stuff. It's even difficult to find it out when you look it up, because every paper publishes something slightly different. Mm -hmm. But they are very useful as an initial test. Uh, Most of the time, however, to be honest, allergies are clinical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of allergy is blindingly obvious. And I'd say... 90% of allergy, the parents come in and say, my kid's allergic to, and you have a little bit of disbelief because sometimes they're wrong, but 90% of the time they're going to be correct. (laughs) Um, From experience, when I used to see children doing allergy, if dad's brought the kid in, he's given the kid the food about three or four times (laughs) and pretty much confirmed the allergy. (laughs) 
Um, I used to have a top tip. If your grandmother was Greek, you probably had walnut allergy. Wow. Um, because you would go to grandma's when you were two or three for the afternoon, uh, and grandma would whip out the cake, which often had walnuts in. Uh, and that, and meanwhile, mum and dad have said, which at the time was our kind of advice, don't give the kid nuts. Uh, and walnuts, because they obviously, in a cake, don't count. <laughs> um, so there were lots of little things like that. Um, but look, a as a GP, I think they're very useful. Um, we know that if you're allergic to peanuts, you've got a probably 10 to 20% chance of being allergic to another nut. Yeah. Uh, and these days, um, most people, medical legally and also socially, don't just want to go, oh, well, we'll find out with our kid. We'll just do a bit of experimenting. They want to kind of find out in, in ahead. And, th and that does actually um, give us some uh, difficulty. Just before you go on, Travis, thank you for mentioning dads, uh, Damon, because I've discovered my girls are allergic to cleaning up their rooms. My children are 13 and 15, both girls. <laughs> Um, I think that uh, allergy in particular, there's no test for it, uh, <laughs> and it's extremely resistant to change. <laughs> now, can I ask then, with RAS testing, what's the most useful clinical information a GP can write when requesting that test? Uh, that they have had an immediate reaction within two hours and the suspected substances. Right, Okay. When, when you say suspected substances, are we talking you, they like, you like it narrowed down to two or three or can there be more? Uh, if you've eaten something beforehand, most, most children don't eat 28 foods at once. That's usually the preserve of adults who go to uh, yum char or buffets. <laughs> Though I, I think now in COVID times, that's largely been diminished. <laughs> most children are only having one or two foods or three foods. Uh, usually that can be filtered out by they've had some of those foods again. Um, parents are... Well, all people assume common things occur commonly because they do, but okay, but rare, rare things in immunology occur relatively commonly as well. So parents are very good at going, oh, it must be the peanut, not the walnut, and they will often give the food again, and that history is critical. Mm. Um, your chance, if you've eaten a food three times, your chance that you're allergic to it is incredibly low. Uh, we do know there is a trigger level so that uh, some people who are allergic to peanuts need only a few milligrams. Some people need quite a few peanuts. Uh, and that if you have a lower uh, tolerance, so in other words, generally speaking, if you get an allergy with a very small amount, you are more likely to have anaphylaxis when you eat a larger amount. Yeah. But unfortunately, our science is just that you are more likely. We're not very good at predicting the severity of your allergy. Um, which is exactly what every single parent wants when they come and see you to know, is this test that I've had, let's say a RAST or specific IgE to peanut was 15. Now that pretty much gives you a 100% chance of being allergic to peanut. So 98.5 in studies. Uh, there are always unusual people out there that have funny tests, but 98.5% of those people will be allergic to peanut. It does not tell you, however, what that allergy will be. You could have a few hives around your lips or you could be lying on the floor unconscious from anaphylaxis. And we have had uh, many attempts over the last 10 years using that recombinant technology I talked about to try and find the allergens which are more responsible for more severe disease. Uh, originally, we thought it was a component called ARAH2, but that appears not to be so true. Uh, and what's important is what reaction you've had in the past. We do know that 
only 10% of children who have allergy to peanuts have anaphylaxis. Mm. The trouble is that if you've had one minor reaction, we don't know if you're in that group or not. Uh, and the difficult thing is trying to assuage, assuage um, people's fear, um, but yet most people uh, will not have a severe reaction. In fact, cashew nuts appear to be one of the most immunogenic foods. So in other words, if you're allergic to cashews, you have a 20% chance of having anaphylaxis. Triptase, how useful is triptase uh, as a test? Uh, triptase is useful in certain, certain circumstances only. So uh, triptase is obviously used in the diagnosis of the various forms of mastocytosis. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously they're relatively uncommon. Um, it's useful when someone presents, particularly with hypotension, where the cause is uncertain. For reasons that we don't know, serum triptase presence at an abnormal amount correlates in allergic reactions with the presence of low blood pressure. Mm. So food reactions rarely have an elevated triptase. It doesn't mean they're not anaphylaxis. Uh, whether it's um, bee stings or wasp stings or other venomous critters, if you have anaphylaxis to them and you're over 65, there is a greater chance of having no skin signs at all. So you just present with hypotension. So I've seen many uh, elderly gardeners uh, who thought they just were really tired, uh, had really low blood pressure. I remember one lady finding her husband about four hours later, luckily lying flat on his bed. Uh, when, when she woke him, he sort of was barely conscious and he had blood pressure of 50 when the ambulance arrived. But he did okay because he was lying flat for four hours. Wow. Um, so uh, that's where triptase is particularly useful because obviously there are many other causes, heart attacks, etc., um, it's also particularly useful for allergic reactions under anaesthesia. Mm. Because as you might imagine, uh, there are many causes when you're having an anaesthetic of getting low blood pressure, your medical conditions, the medications received. Uh, and it's also very difficult to notice urticaria, particularly if you're cold, uh, you may not see it. Or if you're hypoperfused, if you've got a blood pressure of 50, you don't see urticaria. And you often may not get angioedema. Um, so triptase there is very useful. I don't think in a GP setting it's ever likely to be terribly useful unless you're working in an emergency setting or patients, elderly patients coming in with hypotension where you really acutely, where you don't know why it is. The other thing is triptase really needs to be measured twice. Um, so there, there are various kinetics. Some patients have a very slow release of triptase. Uh, and so you really need to retest it about three hours so at time zero, in other words, whenever you remember to do it, and about three hours later. And that goes for every single patient who has triptase measured. Mm -hmm. The other thing we like to do is that if a patient has an elevated triptase, we want to show that they go back to normal when they're not having a reaction. Um, the di many patients have been diagnosed with mastocytosis um, because, in fact, they do have more atypical drug reactions. They get more reactions from bee stings and they can be out there in the community completely undiagnosed. Uh, and that if their triptase doesn't return to normal, then it's worthwhile referral to an immunologist uh, for investigation of mastocytosis. Itchy throat, watery eyes, runny nose. Are allergies holding you back? 
I'm just going to round off this section of the podcast about hay fever because we've just got a few general questions to uh, to round off with. Well, you, we've got you here, Damon, and I should just let you know you are talking to someone who's lived on Telfast for about 30 years. <laughs> How common is hay fever and what do you put the common causes down to? So we know in Australia the last uh, census put self-reported rhinitis at 19%. Oh. So probably at least 10% of Australia has true allergic rhinitis. Um, the term hay fever is a bit anachronistic because it was when we thought hay was actually the cause of hay fever, yeah. when it's actually grass pollen. Uh, and in Australia, the dust mite is a, as big of significance. So in Australia, so allergens for uh, allergic rhinitis differ from place to place. They also differ from climate, so that in Victoria, if you look at Melbourne, uh, the predominant allergen is ryegrass, and dust mite probably is second. Uh, if you look at Queensland, the predominant grass allergen is Bermuda grass, is Bahia grass, or paspalum, which is this crappy grass that grows on the roadside. It's like a weed, and it has a sort of purple flower, and it has a special attribute where it pollinates five to six times a year. Uh, and dust mite is also important as well. Um, so those grass allergens and dust mite would be uh, number one by a mile, number one and two by a mile. Uh, and then come the uh, allergens which we introduce into a house like uh, cats and dogs. Cats being more immunogenic and more likely to cause atopic disease than dogs in general. Great. I'm taking that snippet to play for my <laughs> wife and daughters because I want to get rid of our cats. But, uh... <laughs> Um, also, I should say that uh, uh, antihistamines are not the optimum treatment for allergic rhinitis. Oh, what would be? Nasal steroids. Okay. <laughs> okay. So inhaled nasal steroids have a much greater efficacy than antihistamines. Antihistamines do not deal with congestion at all. They help itch and they help rhinorrhea, a watery nose. But uh, nasal steroids are more effective, so effective in about 75 to 80% of patients and they deal with all four symptoms of related to allergy. Um, in people who have persistent disease despite that, then we have what used to be called desensitization and what we now call immunotherapy, where we can look at specific allergens and uh, vaccinate them in a way that's been done for more than 100 years. We do it slightly differently to the original uh, man who purified yes. the grass in his backyard, <laughs> um, but in a very similar way. And now we even have forms which don't involve injection with tablets that dissolve under the tongue. Uh, and there is a two, at least two ones for dust mite and there are one for some non-tropical grasses so that uh, the resistance to doing it has decreased. And, wow. and they remain efficacy somewhere between 65 and 80%. So in patients who they work in, it can be a, a, a game changer. With those different ones, when is testing appropriate? Because clearly, you know, someone comes in, let's use the old term hay fever, you have hay fever. When do you say, okay, let's test what it is? Uh, um, that I think, you know, the vast majority of people will get away without knowing what specifically they're allergic to. And you, unless they particularly want to know, there's no great advantage in knowing. Uh, so in other words, if you have suboptimal control, and there are various measures of that, uh, on inhaled stero nasal steroids, which are very safe. There are multiple medications. Um, none of them are on the PBS, but luckily a couple are over the counter and are now, we're talking, you know, $14 for three months treatment. 
that's pretty reasonable, um, that if you didn't respond to that or if you got side effects or occasionally just if you don't want to do it because you have some uh, phobia of steroids, uh, that those people could have testing. The only point of doing testing is if you're going to do something about it, of course. Uh, and so uh, the doing something about could be getting rid of your pet. Uh, from my personal experience, that has happened no times ever in my <laughs> clinical life. Okay. Good luck, Steve. I'll, I'll go and make a phone call now. <laughs> Dr. Damon Lanker, thank you thus far. Thank you. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.